Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35. And when you find your place there, um, you can stand with me for the reading of God's Word. When the Scripture speaks, God speaks, so we stand out of reverence for God speaking to us through the pages of Scripture. Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had Mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Lord, you give us in the pages of scripture inklings of what you have done through Jesus Christ. And this is one of those passages. And yet, Lord, it's not just about our relationship with you, it's about our relationship with others to demonstrate our relationship with you and what you have done for us. Lord, help us to listen, help us to understand, and help us to practice these things. We pray them in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, you know, we've been going through Matthew 18, and this Matthew 18 is the fourth of five teaching sections in the Gospel of Matthew uh, about, uh, well, to, from Jesus to his disciples. And Matthew 18 has all been about um, how do disciples interact with one another in the New Covenant community, in the church, in the local church. As we have seen Jesus talking about. Remember Matthew 16, Jesus says, I will build my church. I will build my assembly. He's talking about the new covenant assembly versus the old covenant assembly of Israel. And he's saying, I'm going to build it. And uh, even as Matthew 18 indicates, we looked at this uh, last couple weeks, uh, that, that uh, universal assembly that Jesus is building, that universal new covenant assembly is manifested in individual local churches. And even as we looked at last week, each of those local churches has a, a heaven-given, a heaven-backed authority to speak as an embassy of the future kingdom on earth. Now remember, the whole of Matthew 18 is framed by two questions. Uh, in 18.1, uh, we saw the disciples approach Jesus we saw him approach Jesus, and they asked the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And then from uh, the answer of that question, right on through verse 20, Jesus keeps talking, and he emphasizes different aspects, the, the, the value of individual disciples, even if they're straying, God's seeking them, uh, how a disciple ought not to despise a fellow disciple, how they ought to go after them, just like their heavenly father would, and seeking them through the process of church discipline, as we talked about last couple weeks. But now we get a new question in verse 21. We get a new question. 
And really, uh, this is just another dynamic, another aspect of how disciples, how fellow disciples are going to handle one another, live with one another, interact with one another in the church. And the question that Peter um, raises is essentially this, how do, we, how do we handle sinning against one another in the church? You see, we are all sinners here in this body of believers. Even though we are redeemed sinners by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are still sinners. We still sin, and we still sin not, not only against God, but against one another. It is a reality. It is unfortunate, it is, but it is true. It's realistic. So even the question that Peter raises here is a realistic one, and we need to know, how do we, as we sin against one another, unfortunately, it is true, how do we handle that? How do we deal with that? And so this text this morning answers that question, and the big idea for this text this morning is this, Forgive a fellow disciple from a heart gripped by the Father's incalculable forgiveness of you. Forgive a fellow disciple from a heart gripped by the Father's incalculable forgiveness of you. Let's look at verse 21, and really this text splits into two parts. There is, in verses 21 through 22, Jesus' kind of initial answer to Peter's question that Peter raises. And then in the second part, um, Jesus backs his answer in verses 21 and 22, with a parable that illustrates the heart behind uh, Jesus' answer to Peter's question. So we're going to see in verses 21 through 22, first, forgive a fellow disciple without counting. Forgive a fellow disciple without counting. Look at verse 21. Then Peter came up to him. Uh, so this is the same sort of approach that we saw with the disciples in 18.1. It's the same sort of language. Uh, so it's the second part of this discourse. Then Peter came up to him and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Now, to understand Peter's question a little bit, we have to understand how it's connected with what came before. You see, if you compare what Peter is asking here to verse um, 15, it is very similar. Look at verse 15 again. Verse 15, and we argued that it should be read without that little prepositional phrase. So verse 15 reads, If your brother sins, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And so Peter, uh, remember, that, that we argued, I argued that in 1815, Jesus is envisioning just general sin, not necessarily interpersonal sin, but it could be. Um, but sin in general, what are you supposed to do? We talked about this. You're supposed to go after the straying disciple. You lay out the case before them. They're supposed to be convicted. Uh, they're supposed to listen. They're supposed to repent. And that's the idea of if he listens to you, you've gained your brother. But notice the similarity with what Peter is asking here in 1821. If, your if my brother sins against me, so now this is a subset of the case that was talked about in 1815. There it was, well, uh, your brother sins, here's what you do. But now Peter's asking kind of about the other side of that. Well, let's suppose a brother, a fellow disciple, sins against me. Well, that would be a case of the fellow disciple sinning. So it falls under 1815. And so even in the case where a fellow disciple sins against you, what are you supposed to do? Well, uh, if you're the offending disciple, we know from the Sermon on the Mount, you're supposed to go to that person. If you're the offender, you're supposed to go and reconcile with that other person. But if that person doesn't recognize their sin, what are you supposed to do as the offended party? You are supposed to, according to 1815, you're supposed to go and confront them and saying, brother or sister, you have sinned against me. Here's how, from the teaching of Jesus, from the scriptures, I can show that you have sinned against me. And what is the goal of that? Not just to confront them, but so they might repent and uh, turn from their sin and the brother might be gained. So Peter supposes all of that. He supposes all of that because his question is, well, let's suppose that my brother does sin against me and I forgive him. Meaning what? Uh, the other brother, the offending brother, has already repented, acknowledged their sin, and has effectively asked for forgiveness. And uh, Peter recognizes that's, my, that's, that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to forgive him. 
How many times, though, is the question, because what Peter is envisioning is a repeat offense. Let's suppose, and we know this to be true just from life and interactions with one another, let's suppose someone offends us, someone sins against us, and we forgive them, but then they go and do it again. So they have to ask their forgiveness again, and it happens again, and then the same thing happens. And we start to say, all right, how are they changing? Is this really happening? How far do we go with this? How far do we go with this? Which is exactly Peter's question. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Now, there's some um, extra biblical info that uh, indicates that the rabbis would say, well, maybe up to three times. Maybe up to three times. And we're not sure. Those are later documents. So we're not sure if that's the exact same thing that the scribes and Pharisees would have taught in Jesus' day. But we can imagine it would be in a similar vein that, all right, once you get to uh, three, it's three strikes, you're out. So um, that's enough. But Peter, uh, understanding at least to some extent Jesus and um, his, his view of the law, his view of forgiveness, he's like, I'll, I'll be generous. How about seven times? That's a good biblical number of completeness, of fullness. So let's just say seven times. Now, before we go further, we have to ask ourselves a question. What would happen after seven? So let's suppose that... Um, you know, Peter's right. All right, you do it seven times and then you're done. What, what do you do then at that point? Well, at that point, you're saying, I'm not going to forgive you, uh, meaning uh, because you have offended me and that's had a cumulative effect, you've offended my dignity, you've offended my self-worth as a person, uh, therefore, I am not going to forgive you the eighth time. In a sense, you're taking um, a sort of retribution, right? You're saying, that's enough. My dignity, my self-worth has been offended enough, and I'm not going to forgive you. That's what would happen after seven. What's the motivation, though? What's the heart behind that? The motivation is, like we said, it's a concern for self-worth, a concern for self-dignity. Um, that's the motivation. Now, understanding that and understanding the motivation behind Peter's question sets up what, the way Jesus answers. What does Jesus say? Verse 22, and uh, Jesus' answer is highlighted in the original as being somewhat surprising. So what does Jesus say? Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. Now, your translation might read 490 or 70 times seven, which is equivalent of 490. Um, the, the Greek construction is probably referring to 77. So um, maybe if you have the, 400, the 70 times 7 one, it'll probably have a footnote that gives the alternative um, and vice versa. So, but probably he's talking about 77 times. That seems the most likely answer. Now, normally when you look at this passage, you ask the question, well, what is Jesus really saying? Is he really telling Peter to count up to 77? We understand that, no, he's being hyperbolic, and he's saying that, uh, no, you keep going. You don't put a limit on it. That's part of how Jesus is answering. You don't put a limit on it. You don't count. You don't count. You don't count up to seven, and you don't count up to 77. The idea is that you offer a fellow disciple forgiveness, and the understanding is the fellow disciple has been properly confronted, they recognize their guilt, they're repenting, and in such a scenario, you offer them forgiveness, and you do it without counting. But there's a little bit more to what Jesus is saying here. There's a little bit more to what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is alluding, I believe Jesus is alluding to a Old Testament passage. The only other passage in the Bible where you've got a 7 verses 77 indicated. Um, and so when we look at that, the essential point's going to remain the same, that Jesus is telling, you don't count, you don't count, you just keep that offer of forgiveness. But we get a little more nuance if we understand what he is referring to and looking back to in the Old Testament. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Now, Genesis 4, the chapter begins with Cain murdering Abel. We remember that. We understand that. First murder 
in the Bible. And as God is dishing out um, Cain's judgment, his punishment, um, Cain is afraid uh, because God's making him a wanderer on earth, and Cain is afraid that, well, someone's going to find me and someone's going to kill me. And in response to this, uh, the Lord says in verse 15 of chapter 4, he says this, Then Yahweh said to him, Not so. Okay, this isn't going to happen. Someone's going to find you and kill you. Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And Yahweh put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Now, that's great. Well, not great, but we understand what's going on there. That if someone kills Cain, um, they're going to have a sevenfold retribution put on them. Now, the, uh, most of the rest of the chapter is a tracing of Cain's line, his descendants. And we get one of these descendants in verse 23 and 24. His name's Lamech. And listen to this. Verse 23, chapter 4. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. Now, what is Lamech doing here? What is Lamech doing? Very twisted. What he's saying is, I killed someone like Cain killed someone, but what Lamech is doing, uh, rather than looking at Cain's situation as a punishment, he's boasting in the reality that if someone kills him now, uh, well, uh, if someone were to kill Cain, he, he's going to get sevenfold retribution. But Lamech is boasting and saying, well, if someone kills me, they're going to get 77-fold retribution. Now, why is he doing that? Well, he's essentially doing that because he's thinking he's so much better than Cain. He's of so much more value or high status or self-worth. And so he is saying, well, my retribution, if someone kills me, is 77-fold. And now you look at that, and you look at what's going on in Matthew 18, and you're like, are those passages really connected? Because they look very different on the surface of it. Look very different. Well, uh, a couple indications here. First, the construction in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for 77-fold is the same in Matthew. Now, that wouldn't be enough in and of itself. But we've also, this is the only other place in the Bible where you get a jump from 7 to 77. It's the only other place. Now, even so, you're like, yeah, but I still don't get it. Why, why would Jesus be alluding to this passage? Well, I believe it's because the heart of Lamech is the exact same heart that Peter was demonstrating. What is Lamech's heart behind boasting on the 77-fold? He's saying, well, I'm of such value, I'm of such dignity, I'm of such worth that if someone kills me, there's going to be 77-fold retribution on them. What is Peter's heart back in Matthew 18? Why would you put a limit on forgiveness? The reason you would put a limit on forgiveness is your own self-worth, your own dignity. So uh, I'm of such value, I'm of such worth that past seven times, or past 77 times, then I'm going to exact my retribution. You see the similarities there? Uh, Jesus is effectively saying... Peter, if you want to count up to seven, you might as well count up to 77 because that's the heart that Lamech had. So he's indicting Peter for having this heart. The heart is the problem. The heart that elevates self uh, and self-dignity enough to say that, well, I'm going to count up to seven, but past that, I'm not going to offer forgiveness anymore. The heart is the issue. The heart is the same in each place. And so effectively, the point remains that what is Jesus telling Peter? He's effectively telling Peter, you don't count. You offer forgiveness to a fellow disciple without counting. Without counting. Then what does Jesus do? He backs up what he's, just, what he's saying in verses 21 through 22, his initial answer to Peter. He says, you, there's a heart problem here, Peter. You don't, you don't forgive with counting, so then how does he back that up? He backs it up with the parable that he gives in verses 23 through 35, which is where we turn next. And the main, the main idea of this parable, and you'll see how it 
backs up what um, he told Peter in verses 21 through 22. The main idea of the parable is forgive from a heart gripped by the Father's forgiveness. Forgive from a heart gripped by the Father's forgiveness. The heart is the issue in all of this. And so Jesus has identified that in his answer to Peter, and then he shows here's the heart realities that are in play in this parable. So let's go ahead and look at the parable, starting in verse 23. Now, verse 23, on account of this, that's literally how that reads, on account of this. On account of what? Jesus is speaking still, and he's saying, on account of the heart that was just demonstrated by your question, the heart that counts, the heart that one accounts, on account of this, the kingdom of heaven uh, may be made like a man, a king. Now, we're familiar with Jesus' language uh, like this. We saw a lot of this in Matthew 13. What is Jesus doing? He's describing uh, a situation that is like the kingdom of the heavens. The kingdom of um, heaven is a uh, key phrase in the gospel of Matthew, and we've described it a bunch over the course of our time in Matthew. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom that comes down from heaven, that is authorized by heaven, that is backed by heaven, that is ultimately going to be ruled from the Messiah in a throne in Jerusalem over the whole world. That's the kingdom of heaven. Hasn't come yet, hasn't come when Jesus is announcing this, because the nation of Israel, the, the leaders, and even the people, by and large, are rejecting the call to repentance and faith. But what Jesus did in Matthew 13, and what he did there, is he described, okay, given that rejection, here's what the kingdom's going to look like in the coming in the future. And he describes different aspects of what that's going to look like. Well, what he's doing here is something similar, and what he's describing is, here's how the economy in God's kingdom operates. Here's how it operates, uh, this side of the kingdom coming in fullness, and it's, gonna, uh, it's tied with how the kingdom's going to come in the future. This is just how God's citizens work together. Here's how God's put it together for his citizenry. So he makes a comparison. It's now, remember also when Jesus says this, when he says the kingdom of heaven is made like a man, a king, he's not just comparing the kingdom to that person. He's comparing it to the whole situation that the parable describes. So we're not just saying, oh, the kingdom's like the king. No, he's saying the kingdom is like this whole situation that the parable describes. Okay, so then let's, let's jump into this story that Jesus is telling us. So the kingdom of heaven is made like a, has been made like a man, a king, who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. Now, um, ESV reads servants, but the idea here is slaves. Uh, these folks are owned by the king. They may have, now in a slave in the Greco-Roman world, could have a great deal of responsibility and um, even a hierarchy to an extent. They're still owned. Um, but these slaves are owned by the king, uh, but he's, they, they have accounts with him, meaning they owe things to the king, and the king wants to close those accounts. So that's what he starts to do. When, the king, when he began to settle, so he starts this whole process of calling in all his slaves and settling accounts. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we need to pause and take some time to understand the magnitude of this number. One talent was equal to 6,000 denarii. And you say, well, that doesn't help me. I don't know what a denarius is. A denarius was the average, for, for a day laborer, for someone to go out in the fields, your average day laborer, a denarius was one day's wages. So one talent is worth 6,000 days wages. You got 10,000 talents that do your multiplication. That means you have a, a debt of 60 million denarii, which is 60 million days wages. Now, even then, uh, you know, we could convert that into dollars. But if we did that, uh, it's like uh, nowadays it just feels like monopoly money anyway. So uh, let's get another way of getting a sense of this number. Let's use mileage as uh, just a way of thinking about this number. So let's suppose that one denarius is one mile. We have a kind of a physical, tangible feel for the distance traveled in one mile. We do that regularly. So let's say one mile is one denarius. So then one talent would be equivalent to 6,000 miles. 
Now, 6,000 miles, um, let's suppose you went from Washington to uh, Florida, if you could do a straight line distance, which you can't, but let's, that, that's about 2,800 miles-ish. So 6,000 miles is a longer distance than you can have between two points in the continental United States. That's one talent. But we've got not one talent, but we've got 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents would have gotten you to Mars on January 1st. January 1st, uh, uh, Mars and Earth were about 60 million miles apart. So 10,000 talents would have gotten you to Mars on January 1st, the precise distance. I think right now it's a little shorter, so you could still go to Mars with that amount of, of mileage, all right? So that's the, the kind of magnitude we're talking. It gives you kind of a visceral feel because that's what these people would have had. When they would have heard the, the, the notion of 10,000 talent debt, uh, debt, they probably would have gasped. It's just like an unbelievable amount. Like you can't pay this back. How, text doesn't tell us how did this guy get in this much debt, doesn't answer that. Um, all the point is, is that he has it. It's an unbelievable, uh, incredible debt. It's more than like the tax revenue that could have been gotten from Palestine in a, in a year that was supposed to go to Rome. It's, it's an amazing, incredible amount of debt. If you went back to the 60 million days wages idea, it would have taken you uh, not quite, well, it would have taken like 170,000 years-ish for you to pay it back if you were only earning, you know, the average day wage for a laborer which maybe this guy didn't, but that's not the point. It's a humongous, astronomical debt, okay? But what happens? So this guy owes this much debt. Verse 25, and since he could not pay, now that's kind of funny because it's like obviously the guy can't pay. Uh, no matter, I mean, we don't know how he got the debt. Maybe he's, you know, had some investments and they didn't go well. We don't know. But he can't pay. No, duh. He can't pay the debt. What did he do? Since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had for him to be repaid. Now, he's a slave. He is owned by his master and his family, um, at least in this scenario. Um, so the, the king has the right to sell him. But even if he sells him and his family and whatever the slave owns, he's not going to come anywhere near to recouping the cost. You know, you might be able, I think there's some estimates I saw, you might be able to get, maybe you could get to 10,000 denarii with that kind of a sale, but it's a pitiful return, right? It's a minuscule amount compared to what this slave owes. But he's going to recoup at least some cost. It's a bad debt, but maybe he'll get a little bit out of it. So the master's looking to get repaid. So what happens? Verse 26, therefore the slave he falls on his knees, and the idea is he, he does, um, he bows before the king. He's probably prostrate, and notice what he asks for, or what he says. Have patience with me, and all things I will repay you. What is he asking for? Time. He's asking for time. He's not asking for forgiveness of the loan or the debt. He's asking for time. If I have more time, I will repay you all things, which is laughable. Right? Uh, he, there's, no amount of there's no amount of time, uh, given the situation, that he's going to have to be able to repay this enormous debt. But he's asking for time. He's asking for patience. How does the king respond? Verse 27. Being moved with compassion, the master of that slave released him, and forgave him his loan. That's how it's described. The whole 10,000 amount is described as a loan. Uh, he's obligated to repay it. Um, uh, it's a loan. And the king wipes it out. It's gone. 
That's what it means to forgive a debt. Uh, it means that he's no longer going to hold the slave liable for this loan. But the important thing here to notice is, yes, he did an astounding thing. Like, this is totally surprising because who has to bear the cost of forgiving the loan? The king does. The king has to, and you know, he's already lost it. He's already loaned it to the, to the slave, but he's giving up his right to any repayment of that loan. So who has to bear that cost? The king does. The king does. But why did he do it? Why did he do it? Well, it says, verse, at the start of the verse, being moved to compassion. This is kind of gut-level compassion that is being indicated here. The king is moved to compassion. The master is moved to compassion for the sake of the slave. Now, what moved him to compassion? It wasn't just the sale of his family and his goods because he was going to do that before he felt compassion. Like That didn't move him to compassion. What moved him to compassion? The slave's entreaty. The slave, now mind you, the slave didn't ask for forgiveness of the loan. The slave is just saying, have patience with me, give me some more time, and I will pay you all of it. Which is laughable and hopeless, but it's that plea that moved the heart of the king to not give the slave what he asked for, which was just more time, but to do more than that to forgive it all to forgive this astounding, incredible debt. And then that scene ends. It just ends with the, the master forgiving the debt. What happens next? Verse 28. Verse 28. But that slave going out found one of his fellow slaves. So the idea is... If you picture in your mind, you're in the audience chamber of the king. That seems to be kind of where you would meet the king and talk about finances. And then he's just been forgiven all this debt, and he walks out of the audience chamber. And it seems like the text is indicating uh, this happens pretty close, like maybe within the same hour, right? We don't know for sure. Jesus doesn't specify. But it seems like the way Jesus is framing it, that this happens right away. That that slave that had just been forgiven goes out and he finds one of his fellow slaves. So the idea of him being a fellow slave means that both the guy that just got forgiven, the humongous debt, and this new guy, they are both owned by the king. They are both responsible to the king. They are fellow slaves. What is, what, what is it about this fellow slave? Well, this fellow slave owes him 100 denarii. So let's get a sense of this size and number. A denarius is the average day wage for a laborer. So 100 denarii, that's uh, 100 days wages, which that's a little more than three months, which is not inconsequential. Uh, it's not an inconsequential amount of money. Um, go back to our mileage analogy. One denarius is one mile. Um, that would take you from here to Boardman, right about. So you go from here to Boardman, that's the amount of mileage, which you travel 100 miles, uh, especially if you're traveling with kids, you realize that's not an inconsequential um, amount of distance right? A hundred miles. It's not inconsequential. Now, what, might, uh, what, we are, what we should expect at this point, this guy just walked out of the king's audience chamber, having been forgiven uh, an amount of debt that would have taken you, if we were to visualize it in terms of mileage, from Earth to Mars on January 1st. Um, we expect, oh, he's going to find this guy, uh, and this slave owes this other slave some money, and he's going to forgive him his debt too. That would be the logical thing to do, especially as he's still feeling that joy of having been forgiven his own debt. But what happens? And seizing him, which is a very kind of violent term. He seizes him. After he sees him, he begins to choke him. So he grabs this guy, and he puts his hand around this guy's neck, and he starts choking him. Like, whoa. Not even being brought into the king's audience chamber was that kind of violence exhibited. And what does the first slave say? He says, pay back anything you owe. Pay back anything you owe. And verse 29, 
we get basically a repetition, not quite verbatim, but almost, of the actions taken by the first slave with the king, but now coming from the mouth of a fellow slave to the first slave. It says what? what? Therefore, falling, and the idea is falling on his knees, his, uh, the fellow slave is imploring him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Almost verbatim with what the first slave said. Now remember, this, it seems like this happens pretty, I mean, probably within an hour of him walking out of the king's audience chamber. So this guy falls down at the first slave's feet, and he hears these words, and there's no doubt he's recognizing those are the exact same words that I just asked the king, or that I just used with the king. Again, what is the fellow slave, what is the second slave asking of the first? He's not asking for forgiveness. He's saying, give me some more time and I will repay you. At least in this case, it's reasonable. Like 100 days wages, you could do that. It's possible. He could recoup the cost. And you would think he's got to respond the same way the king did. But what happens? Verse 30. Now, uh, the ESV reads, he refused. But it, it's not just that he refused. Here's how it reads. Verse 30, he, but he was not wanting to. Not just that he refused. It's that the first slave doesn't want to. It's a heart problem. Uh, what does he not want to do? Uh, well, what is the second slave asking for? He's just asking for more time to be able to repay. But he doesn't. The 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 first slave doesn't want to give him time. Let alone forgive him. He has no desire for more time. He is. He wants his money and he wants it now. So what is he going to do? Doesn't want to, but departing, he throws him, he throws the second slave into prison until he should repay everything that he owes, which that could happen. That's debtor's prison. Um, and uh, you, that, uh, we, we know from the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talked about being put into prison until you could pay. And the idea in debtor's prison is that you can do some work and you can earn a wage and that wage goes to paying off your debt. And so this is a Realistic scenario, he probably is going to eventually get repaid. Given enough time with his fellow in debtor's prison, he's going to be repaid. This was a totally legal course of action. This was not illegal. This was totally legal for this first slave to do this to the second. What happens? Verse 31. Verse 31. Therefore, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, so now we've got more slaves of the king observing all of this, they were greatly distressed. Um, it's not just that they're grieved or sad, it's that they're disturbed. They're disturbed by what they have seen. And they went, and they, they, remember, everything is totally legal. Totally legal, above board in that sense. So they don't have any recourse except to tell it to the king, and that's exactly what they do. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. They think the king ought to know about this. So what does the king do? Verse 32. Then his master summoned him. Summons him back into the king's audience chamber and says to him, wicked slave, evil. Now we know, even at the outset of how the king's responding, what he's addressing with regard to the slave. Everything was evil, but this was a totally immoral and evil act that the slave had done evil slave. All that debt. It's fronted in the original. It's emphasized. All that debt. 10,000 talents. 60 million days wages. I forgave you. All that debt I forgave you. Why? 
because you implored me. Now, remember, the, 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 the slave didn't implore the king to forgive him his debt. He didn't ask for that. He just asked for more time. But it was that imploring of the king that moved the king to mercy and moved him to forgive such an astronomical debt. And what's, what's the, the conclusion from that? He says, I forgave it to you. It's done. I, I did. But there's an understanding with that. Was it not necessary also to you to show mercy to your fellow slave as I also showed mercy to you? See, the king describes what he had done um, as mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not giving you what you deserve, which is exactly what happened, right? The, the king deserved to be able to collect debts, to be able to sell the slave to even get a meager portion of his loan back. He had the um, right to do that, but he showed mercy. He didn't give to the slave what he deserved. And notice the language, was it not necessary? There's an obligation here. It's not a legal obligation. What is it? It's a moral obligation. Was it not necessary for you also to show mercy to your fellow slave as I also showed mercy to you? It's a rhetorical question with the clear answer. Yes, of course it was necessary. So the king is saying, I forgave you all of that. And uh, it's with, I didn't state it explicitly, but it's with the understanding that you would show the same sort of mercy to those around you. It's necessary to do that. There's a moral necessity for you to do that. There's no answer at all from the first slave. What does happen? Verse 34, it's all in the court of the king right now. And being angry. Now, what happened in the first audience? The first audience, the king, after the slave pleaded, he had compassion, which drove him to forgiveness. Here, we've got a different emotion. We have anger. His master being angry handed him over to the torturer jailers. It's this word that it does indicate jailers, but it indicates also torture at the same time. He handed him over to the torturer jailers until when? Until he might repay everything that was owed. Now, there's a difference here, isn't there, than the first time. What was going to happen the first time with uh, dealing with this 10,000 talent debt? He's going to sell his family and everything he had so that means the slave's going to be no longer owned by the master. He's going to be owned by someone else, and that's going to be the end of it. He's going to recoup not near the whole amount of the 10,000 talent debt, but it's going to be done. Here it's worse. This slave is now uh, going to be thrown in prison. Why is he being thrown in prison? Well, because that's exactly what he did with his fellow slave. He put his fellow slave in prison until he should be repaid. And now the king's like, you like that, huh? Well, let's do the same thing to you. It's poetic justice. It satisfies the requirement, except that there is an expectation that even in debtor's prison, the first guy could repay his 100 denarii debt. This guy is just going to be tortured until he dies because there's no way he can repay the 10,000 talent debt. That's the situation that Jesus describes, but then he applies it for us in verse 35. In this manner also, my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive each his brother from your heart. So Jesus does two things here. One, he gives us enough information to unravel the parable, doesn't he? Because he essentially says, um, the king in the parable, that represents your heavenly father. And then from that correspondence, we can unravel the rest of it. The fellow slaves are disciples. Uh, the, uh, the disciples of Jesus get to call God father. So we understand that. We also understand things like uh, debt is being equated with sin, Right? You have a debt that, that indicates sin. 
and many other correspondences that we could draw. But what's his point? What's his point with the correspondence? Jesus doesn't just say, um, so also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive each his brother, period. Right? Jesus isn't interested so much in the action. He is, but it's more than that. So also my heavenly Father will do to you if you do not forgive each his brother from your hearts. And that has been the issue all along. You know, if you trace back through the parable... Um, the, the king forgave the, the, the first slave because of compassion. The, second, the slave didn't forgive his fellow slave. Why? Because he didn't want to. And all of that traces back up to the initial question by Peter. Why would you ask about a limit on forgiveness? If you're, you only ask about a limit on forgiveness if you're interested in the mere action of forgiveness rather than the heart of forgiveness. But Jesus is illustrating for this parable, that's the wrong question. That's the wrong question. You shouldn't even be asking that question because if you understand what the Father has done in forgiving your sin, there'd be no question of a limit. That's his point. What is sin? Well, better yet, let's, let's talk in the terms of debt. What do we owe God? We're his creation. We owe him our allegiance. We owe him our obedience. But more than that, God wants a relationship with us, his creatures. And he, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So what is sin? Sin is the opposite of that. Uh, sin is failing in any way to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you are, God is infinitely worthy of that love, that worship, that delight in him. And so when we do not give it, we have just incurred not a 10,000 talent debt, but an infinite debt, an unpayable debt. For one sin. And then you think about, and uh, Scripture makes it very clear, God records and knows each, whether it's thought, word, or deed, He knows each sin we commit against Him. And what is that? It's just accruing more debt. Each time an unpayable debt. More than, if we were to conceive of it in terms of distance, more than the distance from Earth to Mars, or Earth to, uh, Earth to Pluto, or Earth to the Andromeda galaxy. It does... It just keeps accumulating. You can't repay it. You may think you can come before God and say, just give me more time. I'll fix it. I'll make it better. I'll do right from here on out. And even if you were to do right from there on out for the rest of the days of your life, if that were even possible, it could not repay that debt. It is unpayable because you are a finite creature unable to repair an infinite damage to the dignity, to the worth, because sin is not just doing naughty things. It's a slap into the face of the infinitely holy God of the universe. It's unpayable. And yet, what we see from the parable, God had compassion. God has compassion for people who cannot pay, who cannot repay that infinite debt now, remember in the parable, who has to bear the cost of repaying that debt when the king forgives the 10,000 talents? The king does. And that is exactly what happened at the cross. You see, it's clear from Matthew, you should call his, Matthew 121, you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins, from their debts. How is he going to do that? Only by bearing the cost himself, which is exactly what Jesus did. This is, he says, Jesus says in Matthew 26, uh, instituting the, uh, the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the covenant for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus on that cross bared the infinite weight of wrath that you and I deserved in place of those who would repent and entrust themselves to him. 
What is repentance? Repentance means you turn your allegiance from sin and self. I'm done living for me. I'm done living for my sin. I trust what Jesus has done on the cross uh, fulfills all of my debt that I cannot pay. I trust none of what I can do, only what Jesus can do. And I swear allegiance to him. And you know how the Bible describes, I love this passage, one of my favorite gospel passages uh, in Colossians. It's a beautiful way of describing what happens for those who truly repented and placed faith in Jesus. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it, nailing the debt to the cross with Jesus Christ. Someone has to pay, and God did, for those who trust in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Because we understand that, you know, when God settles accounts, when does God settle accounts? God settles accounts at the end of time, at the judgment, the future judgment that Jesus and Matthew have been referencing in Matthew, in Matthew all along, God settles accounts of the judgments. And so it's like, well, how do we know uh, that's where God's going to forgive us? That's where God's going to justify us, and that's true. So what happens now when we, play, we repent and place our faith in Christ? What God is doing through his word is he's announcing to us ahead of time, when you come to that day of judgment, that debt is going to be forgiven, and you are going to be counted with the bank account righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's announcing to us now, ahead of time, that's what the verdict's going to be at the judgment. That is, that is what forgiveness from God looks like. And so the first and foremost application of this parable is you have to be gripped by the reality of the gospel by the magnitude of your debt against a holy God and that he forgave it through Jesus Christ. And if your heart is gripped by that, then you're not going to count. Even as much as it hurts. There's no denying that when a fellow brother or sister sins against you, that hurts. And we understand that human beings, you just look, we can do very hurtful and horrific things against one another. History is littered with that. We understand that. And yet, no matter how horrifically you have been sinned against, it cannot come close to the horror of your sin against a holy God that God himself forgave at great cost to himself through the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, if you are gripped with the gospel, your heart is changed by that, you will doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but you will be able to forgive. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is misunderstood a lot of ways in our culture. We've talked a little bit about this. We can see it here, though. This parable is great for illustrating what forgiveness is. When you sin against another, whether it's God or another person, you incur a relational debt. You incur a relational debt. What is then forgiveness? Forgiveness is a transaction. It's a transaction where the offended party grants the offender release from the relational debt that the offender has incurred. So forgiveness is for the offender. That's the one who benefits. Forgiveness is for the offender. What, what, what are the commitments of forgiveness? When we talk about, especially when we're talking about uh, in relation with one another, we're saying this when we say, I forgive you. I'm not going to dwell on the offense. It doesn't mean it's not going to come up. It will come up. But I'm not going to dwell on the offense. I'm not going to bring it up to use against you, to use it as ammo. I'm not going to talk with others about the offense. And I'm committed to pursuing appropriate relational reconciliation. 
See, forgiveness isn't fundamentally an emotion. It's a commitment. Emotion should be present, especially if we're gripped by the reality of the gospel. Forgiveness isn't automatic. You're like, wait a minute, I thought Jesus said you don't put a limit on forgiveness. Well, understand the context here. Uh, remember what I said about 1815? Uh, 1815, you go and show your brother his fault so that he understands and he listens and he repents. The idea is you grant forgiveness to someone who asks for it, who acknowledges their debt. Even in the parable, both the, fellow slave, the first slave and the second slave both acknowledge their indebtedness. So, you off, but the, the key is, the heart of forgiveness is all about the offer is always there. No matter how much I have been sinned against, I can't grant you forgiveness unless you acknowledge your guilt, you acknowledge the relational debt, and then I can discharge it. I can say, I forgive you. I can give, grant you that commitment, but I'm always willing. I'm absolutely always willing. Why? Because I understand. I've been gripped by the reality of God's forgiveness of me. So when someone sins against you, how do you handle that? Well, first, you're going to, especially for hard, difficult offenses, you're going to have to go to God and say, God, this is difficult, this hurts, and yet I see the gospel, I see what you have done for me, and I, by your grace and by your strength, am willing to forgive that other party. And then then you're in a position to grant horizontal forgiveness. See, your heart needs to be right. Your heart vertically with God needs to be right. You need to be ready to offer forgiveness always by God's strength, understanding what he's done for you. And then on the horizontal level, when you're dealing with another person, you are in a position to grant forgiveness if they acknowledge and repent the offense. And even that, in pursuing reconciliation, they may not come to you. You might have to go to them, 1815. Again, you might have to go and say, brother or sister, you have offended me. You have hurt me greatly. And I want you to repent, not just so that my, I, I am appeased, but so that you are brought back into a walk that honors and pleases God. So when you have difficulty with forgiveness, when you want to count, go back to the gospel and acknowledge that no matter what the person has done to you or how painful that has been, there's no, there's no denying that there's pain and hurt. But the debt cannot compare with what you've been forgiven from God. Let God's forgiveness, you're struggling, it's like it's, uh, it hurts, it's hard. Let God's forgiveness of you astound your heart to motivate your forgiveness of the other. There's good news here. You don't have to, first, live under the weight of guilt that our sin brings because God has given a way for it to be dealt with legitimately through Jesus Christ. And second, you don't have to hold on to that debt that you have with other people because the reality of the gospel allows you, empowers you, gives you the motivation to release the debt between you and another. That's the good news from this passage. The warning, which is clearly there as well, is if you are unwilling to forgive, if you hold on to that debt, if you try to put your brother or sister into prison till you've exacted your retribution, be afraid for your soul. How can you claim to be a Christian if you will not extend the forgiveness that God has given you. It is the height of hypocrisy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying it's, it's not difficulty. I'm not saying there's not hurt, but the gospel enables us to forgive. Forgive a fellow disciple from a heart gripped by the Father's incalculable forgiveness of you. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the, oh Lord God, we can't even grasp it, how much you have forgiven us. 
Lord, give us grace to even get an inkling of how much you have forgiven us. And Lord, let that drive us to joy, thankfulness, a desire to extend and bend that grace out to others as, as you would have us, O Lord God. And Lord, we, we are still a sinful people. We're still waiting for the redemption, the full redemption of who we are. And we sin against one another and we do horrific things sometimes. And Lord, we ask your forgiveness for that. And we ask for grace when that does happen to navigate those waters rightly, to always be willing to offer forgiveness, as hard as that is. And Lord, for there to be forgiveness and for there to be repentance and for there to be relational reconciliation, especially in the church, that we might demonstrate the culture of a forgiving people to a world that does not forgive, that is infatuated with self-worth and self-dignity rather than with you. Lord, we ask for your grace to apply these things. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.